Welcome to Trial Tested, a podcast by the American College of Trial Lawyers, an enlightening discussion about life and law created to elevate and inspire trial attorneys. My name is Amy Gunn, and I will be your host for today's episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the American College of Trial Lawyers podcast, Trial Tested. I'm Amy Gunn, a fellow in St. Louis, and today I have the great privilege of spending some time with criminal defense attorney Chris Argatis. Chris is widely recognized as one of the finest criminal defense attorneys in the United States. She's a founding partner of Argatis, Kassman, Headley, and Goldman in Berkeley, California. Chris is a New Jersey native and graduated summa cum laude from Rutgers Law School in 1979. She started as an assistant federal public defender in San Francisco before entering private practice with another well-respected criminal defense attorney, Penny Cooper, in 1982. At the ripe old age of 29, Chris was named by Time Magazine as one of the country's five most promising women lawyers under 35. She has been named in every edition of Best Lawyers of America since its inception in 1983 and for many years as a top 10 lawyer in Northern California Super Lawyers. She's been a member of the American Inns of Court since 1999 and a member of the American College of Trial Lawyers since 2000. In 2010, she received the rare honor of being inducted into the California State Bar Hall of Fame for Trial Lawyers. She has taught criminal trial practice and trial advocacy classes for many years, a recipient of numerous additional awards, honors, and publications. She's a frequent lecturer, most notably on the art and skill of cross-examination. In addition, she's a longtime advisory board member of Northern California Innocence Project and a board member of Western Center on Law and Poverty. In 2017, she was listed in the Chambers Global as a top-ranked band one litigator, where it was noted that Chris was, quote, one of the best anywhere, and also, quote, she knows everybody and everything there is to know about white collar. Hello, Chris. How are you? I'm just fine, thanks. How are you doing? Great. Thank you for joining us today. I want to start where I left off in the intro. Chambers Global had said that you are one of the best anywhere and added that you know everybody and everything there is to know about white collar. So I want to know, how have you become the best anywhere? (laughs) Well, I'm glad they're saying it and not me. (laughs) But if you're asking what my secret sauce is, I would say... First of all, I've been doing this for a long, long time, and I obsess about my cases and my clients. I have, you know, devoted myself to them. I have a relationship that's important to me. I have friends that are important to me and family, but basically what I do is work, and I enjoy it. So I know some younger lawyers have said to me, well, how have you managed work-life balance? And I always say, well, I, in your terms, I don't think I really had work-life balance, and I have loved every minute of it. The second component to my success, and I'm not saying this with any false humility, this is just the absolute rock-bottom truth, is the people who I have around me. We, we have a small firm. It's usually five or six people. We have been together for, you know, 20, 30 years. They are the best and the brightest, and there is no case I've ever had, no success I've ever had that hasn't been the result of several of us working on an individual case. So it it always is a team effort, which is what allows me to do the parts of it that I do best 
best because I got other people who are doing other parts of it that they're better at. Understood. And I, I love the idea that you can be humble, which obviously you are, because your success really does show with all the hard work that you've put in over the years. I want to start at the beginning. Why law? Why law? Well, that goes back when I was in seventh grade. I had some class where they wanted you to pick out a file of the thing you wanted to be when you grew up. And I picked social worker because I thought women couldn't be lawyers. Otherwise, I would have picked lawyer. So that's when I was whatever, let's say 12 or 13. By the time I was graduating high school, the women's movement had occurred. I went to the first women's march that Betty Friedan and Gloria Steinem had in 1970. I think that was when I was a junior in high school. And from that moment on, from Ms. Magazine on, I realized that women could be lawyers, and that's what I wanted to be because I thought it looked exciting, and I thought it was about making rights out of wrongs. You know, who doesn't want to do that? True. How was it then, after having that experience and knowing that law was what you wanted to do for your career, how did you choose criminal defense? How did that come about? Well, I had a really great internship with the Center for Constitutional Rights when I was in law school, and I could pick the cases I wanted to work in. There was a case where they were suing the police because they didn't make arrests in, in battered women's cases. That room had 400 boxes in it. The case had been going on for four years. Nobody had seen a client or a real person in all that time, and it consisted of, you know, going through the boxes and looking for I don't know what. There was at the same time a criminal case, a women's self-defense case, the Yvonne Wanro murder case up in Spokane, Washington, where an Indian woman had shot and killed one man and wounded another who she thought was attacking her and who had molested her son the night before. And that case, I could hold in one hand. You know, it was all about ballistics and witness statements and investigation. And it was going to go to court, you know, that year. So that's just, I thought, well, that's what I want to do. I want to go where the action is. So I, I did work on that case. I went out to Spokane. I worked with Susan Jordan, who was a wonderful trial lawyer. And uh, I never looked back. Now, I understand that you went to law school. You're a New Jersey native, and you went to law school in New Jersey at Rutgers. Right. So how was it that you ended up on the West Coast? The summer between my second and third year. So I had met Susan Jordan on the Yvonne Wanro case. She was the trial lawyer on it. We got to be friends, and she was working on the Bill and Emily Harris kidnapping of Patty Hearst case that was happening here in Oakland. And so she invited me to come out and work on that. Um, She represented Emily Harris, victim, supposed victim. And same thing. I loved it out here. I stayed and I got a job in the Federal Public Defender out here. I have to go back for a second to the Monroe murder case. How'd that turn out? Uh, Susan made a deal. She had been convicted at her first trial. They had won on appeal on the grounds that you should, in a self-defense case, you should consider the fact that she was five foot two and had a cast on her leg, broken leg. 
and the guy was six foot four and menacing. So anyway, they got, they got a great jury instruction decision. And when it came back, Susan negotiated a deal for no time on the eve of trial. And I was part of that too. She took me in the chambers and I watched her do it. Wow. So it sounds like you right out of the gate got some fantastic trial experience. Well, those two were fantastic courtroom experiences. They weren't all the way to a trial, which is what it was all about. I mean, I, I wanted jury trials, and, I, and that was another thing that attracted me to criminal law. I realized early that the only people who really have jury trials on any kind of regular basis are criminal lawyers. You have to be either a prosecutor or a defense lawyer, or you're not going to see juries. That was true then, and it's even more true now. When did you make a decision to go into private practice? There were very, very few women practicing in federal court, like two or three. I was the only woman in the federal defender's office. There were two women out of a 100 assistant U.S. attorneys, prosecutors. And I was trying a case in one courtroom with eight defendants. So the other seven co-defendants were represented by men. And there was a big Hells Angels case going on in the next courtroom with about 12 defendants, 11 male lawyers, and one woman, Penny Cooper. So when we would all tumble out on recesses at lunch or at the end of the day, Penny and I naturally gravitated to each other. And essentially, she sat me down and said, you should come practice with me. You, you know, you, you'll have a wider range practice because we do state and federal, and we'll have a great time. And I immediately saw the truth to that, and that's what I did. So I joined up with Penny, and she had a very successful state court practice, but she didn't have, her cases were not federal very often. So although I was younger and less experienced than she was, I did have the federal experience to bring to the table. And we started what was a very successful partnership and a really important friendship. And how long did that last? How long were you and Penny in practice? We practiced together for 20 years until she retired. And we had Ted Kassman joined us after like two or three years. He's still with me. Laurel joined us after five years, let's say. Still here. You know, I mean, that's what I mean. We are as cohesive as any small criminal law firm. that I don't even know of any others that are been together for as long as we have been. And what's the secret to having that cohesiveness and that success together for so many years? We respect each other and like each other enormously, but I think also we are good at knowing who's good at what, you know, letting people excel and do the parts of the case that they are good at. And we work together on almost everything, you know, like, in other words, Ted is very likely to do all of the motions work. Laurel is very likely to do very fact-intensive investigation. Not that Ted and Laurel don't go to court, but I'm probably more the one in a big case that's going to go to court and, you know, walk around and use the things they've given me. <laughs> so I, I think we know how to, whatever they say about using each person to their highest purpose, uh, and it's worked very well. What did it mean to you as a young lawyer to have someone like Penny Cooper as a mentor? And have you taken that experience along with you through your career? I mean, I don't even know how to describe what it was like for me to have Penny. I mean, first of all, everyone that knows her or knows of her 
agrees that she's one of the finest lawyers that the criminal law world has ever seen. So, and she's a terrific person. When I was first hired by her, for a month, all I did was drive with her from court to court. This would be in state court, in her 911 Porsche, listening to either opera or country music, and go with her for her to introduce me to everybody for, and for me to watch what she did, you know, watch how she handled judges and prosecutors in chambers, watch what she did when she was cross-examining somebody. Who gets that kind of training? So having that to begin my career, well, it's, you know, I don't know what. It's worth a million dollars. Do you carry that experience with you in terms of how you approach mentoring as well? Well, I definitely have tried to mentor young people, women especially, but all young people. And I've, I've made a special effort towards women. Like there was a long period, like 15 years or so, where I would sponsor a women's dinner in San Francisco. And I would just invite every woman that I knew from any firm that was practicing criminal defense law so that we would know each other, you know, so that we could call each other up. If we saw each other in court, we'd feel like we had a friend. And that was a very successful and fun thing. So yes, I have tried for my whole career to bring women along. You mentioned you're the only woman in the Federal Public Defender's Office, and there were only two assistant U.S. attorneys. I know that's changed over the years, but can you tell us a little bit about how you've seen that change and really what it's meant to the practice? There are more of us, but we have a way long way to go because what there is lacking is women who are the lead counsel in a big case, you know, women who are in charge of a case that has multi-defendants and, you know, who's taking a leadership role. And that's particularly true in white-collar cases. And I think it's sort of the same thing that happens in corporate law, right? The corporations are more comfortable hiring somebody from a corporate-type law firm, and they are led by men. How do you think that can get better? You know, I, I don't know. You would have to have a situation where the people who are in sort of in control of giving out cases make a concerted effort to, to include women in those referrals. And I don't see them doing that. There are some times when the clients themselves want to have, to be able to say that there are women lawyers on their team for their own diversity reasons. So sometimes it, come, it comes from the clients, which is a good thing. I mean, people are stupid if they don't want to have a diverse defense team because the jury is diverse and even the bench is diverse. So if you're going into a case, if you're some big company and you're going into a case with a bunch of white male lawyers or a bunch of white male lawyers who have a woman sitting at the table but she doesn't say or do anything that they can see, that's just dumb. I agree. It really does seem there's an advantage that's not being taken. I mean, that's just my personal opinion as well. Do you think there have been times over the years that being a woman attorney has been to your advantage? Well, I think it's been to my advantage with juries. I think sometimes with judges. And I think sometimes with prosecutors. I just don't think it's been an advantage in getting cases to begin with. Understood. 
And speaking of marketing and acquiring clients, from your experience, it looks like hard work and good results has really been what has caused the phone to continue to ring. Is that about right? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, we, we never have done any marketing. I did tons of speaking all over the place. Again, I thought it was my responsibility because people would want some women, you know, on their programs, and I was one of the only women who had big cases and was lead counsel in them, so I sort of felt like I had to say yes to everything. I think that didn't hurt. I mean, another thing that I think helped me in some way that's hard to define is I was early on when when Bill Clinton was first elected, I was made the chair of Barbara Boxer's committee to pick federal judges or to recommend to her federal judges and U.S. attorneys. And I did that. And I think that was very helpful because then I think the whole bar meaning people in big firms thought, oh, I might want to be a federal judge or a U.S. attorney, or my friend might be, or my partner might be. I should get to know her. So I think people thought, well, let's, let's put her in one of these cases. You know, Let's refer her one of these clients. Why not? So I think that helps. So I would make a broader point to that, which is, if you do some extracurricular, some bar activities or political activities in which you have a significant role, not, not just a putting on the program role, but something that matters, I think that gets you known as someone who might have some influence in something that's important in a way that it can be very helpful. You have to also do good work and all that, but it's, it's about getting known to the people who have the cases to make referrals for. You were, early in your career, named by Time Magazine as one of the country's five most promising women lawyers under 35. And I think you were 29 years old at the time. I'm so glad you noticed that. I was only 29 (laughs) and it was up to 35. Nobody notices that. I think that's really significant because, my goodness, that's a huge honor early in your career. And I suspect that that is something that puts you on the map, so to speak. Did you notice changes in the calls that you got or in how you were treated after that? Yeah, I think that was that helped. I think when I got that, I was actually still a public defender. I was just leaving. And then I went to join up with Penny. And that did give me definitely some, you know, profile. But the other thing that was important back in those days is we were not doing white-collar cases. We were not getting our cases from big firms. We were being hired by clients. One of our biggest bunch of clients were the Hells Angels. We were also the favorite law firm of African-American guys who would get busted for drugs in Oakland. So in other words, the Hells Angels would say, get me Penny, and eventually they'd say, get me Chris. And they really were connoisseurs of how to pick a good lawyer because unlike so many business people, they knew what they wanted. They wanted somebody who would fight really hard and somebody who would never give up and somebody who was not afraid to tangle with the prosecutors and the judge. That's what they valued. And if you did that, 
whether you won or lost, they were happy. So that is what launched us, really, is that those were the days when those were the high-profile cases and the Hells Angels and the drug dealers came back over and over again and, you know, we had some successes and and they, it was all in the newspaper, so everybody knew what we were doing. And that theme, not being afraid to fight, I have seen that looking through your entire career. Do you consider that one of the basis, one of the foundational principles of how you practice law? Oh, yeah. I mean, I should have said that to your beginning question, but I guess I think it's just endemic. I mean, it just goes without saying, although maybe it doesn't go without saying, because there's certainly tons of lawyers who think the best way to get good results is to get along with the other side and get along with the judge. I don't think that. I'm from the it's better to be feared than liked mentality. I mean, I get along with plenty of those people, but I don't need to. I don't have to. And if the situation warrants it, you know, I will go to battle and I will make enemies forever (laughs) with somebody if they deserve it. That reminds me of the FedEx case from 2016. Just from what you're saying, I I know there's many, many cases where that has been your mantra. But that one in particular is reminding me of this notion of not being afraid to fight. Can you tell us about that case? The FedEx case was a monumental case, unlike any other in my career, practically anybody's career. The United States government investigated FedEx and UPS for six years because they thought that the online delivery of drugs, right, you go online and say, I want Viagra, a questionnaire pops up and you fill it out and two seconds later a doctor authorizes you to have, a real doctor authorizes you to have Viagra and a pharmacy says, I'll send it to you and they call FedEx or UPS or sometimes the U.S. Post Office and they deliver it to you because if you want your Viagra, you want it overnight, right? Usually it's FedEx or UPS. And the federal government, in its wisdom, decided that FedEx was a drug dealer when they did that and a money launderer when they did that because they should have known that these enormous amounts of oxycodone at one point, but Valium, you know, all, all the... Sin drugs, the government calls them, would be coming from some big warehouse, a pharmacy that was really just a big warehouse in in Florida, and that FedEx should have realized or did realize that there was something screwy there and they shouldn't have been taking these massive amounts of pills and delivering them to wherever they were, whoever they were delivering it to. So they investigated FedEx and UPS. They eventually offered them both a deferred prosecution, you know, pay money, don't plead to anything, agree to some terms, go away. And UPS took that deferred prosecution, and I think I'm right that they paid either $35 million or $50 million. And it was one little article on a Friday afternoon, and it went away, and their stock went up. But FedEx, and this is no credit to me here, FedEx said, we are not doing that. We are not guilty. We're not drug dealers. We're not money launderers. We're innocent. And we're not making any agreement that even looks like a plea. And we're going to trial. 
And also very uncharacteristically, they decided that who they wanted to be their trial lawyer was this person from this small firm in Berkeley. They interviewed a bunch of people and they decided I was the one. And in part, I think they decided it because I had just done the Barry Bonds trial and, and they liked my fighting spirit. So they got indicted, and I think the U.S. attorney was completely shocked that they didn't make a deal, because I remember the, the U.S. attorney herself called me up one day and said, if they don't agree to this and that, DPA, I'm indicting them next Wednesday. And I said, oh, okay, and I called her back the next day, and I said, okay, well, what time is the arraignment? And she said, uh, what do you mean? <laughs> and I said, well, we, we're not, they're not taking that deal, and they're not taking any deal, so what time is the arraignment? And she basically hung up the phone. And the indictment didn't come for another three weeks. So I don't mm -hmm. think, you know what I mean? I, I think they yeah, were Yeah, you shocked. called her bluff. Yeah. But they did get indicted for money laundering and, and being a drug dealer. And yeah, I can't, and the forfeiture was like, 1.8 billion dollars or something you know they could have taken their planes and their warehouses i mean you know the potential consequences were unbelievably bad but they never wavered and so it took about two years to get to trial we used a lot of pretrial motion work to let the judge know you know how bad the prosecution's case was we thought Basically, we used 17C subpoenas to get a lot of documents from the government, from the DEA, about the conflicting messages that the DEA was giving to FedEx. Because half the time, FedEx would be helping the DEA bust the online pharmacies, right? And then they were being charged with conspiring with the same online pharmacies to help them deliver their medications. So it was kind of crazy. I never had a case in which I wound up with so much evidence on my side. But again, this evidence, you could have used it to get any deal you wanted, but FedEx didn't want a deal because they weren't guilty. So we went to trial. Now we're having a judge trial in front of Judge Charles Breyer, who is the brother of Stephen Breyer on the Supreme Court. And I gave a four-hour opening statement, if you can imagine such a thing. Four hours, and I did not repeat myself. Not once. Somewhere in the middle of my opening statement, I turned around, and there's two prosecutors, and one of them had been more recently assigned to the case, and one of them was, had been there from the beginning. And the new guy looked green and was staring at his shoes, because oh, I think no. he was overwhelmed by what I was saying. And then they started calling witnesses, and we started bringing out all our evidence during these witnesses. Then it didn't matter that I had the reputation that I have, because they all knew that I didn't say anything in the opening statement that I couldn't prove. There was no exaggeration in it. There was no bullshit. Everything I said, I was going to prove. And inside of a week, the newer prosecutor convinced his office. I mean, he, I had to go up the chain and give a lot of presentations, but... But basically, he convinced his office that they should dismiss the case, and they dismissed the case. Wow. It was huge. You know, credit to that prosecutor, but very much discredit to everyone in the government that had anything to do with this. And I read a quote that you made after that, I don't mind going up against power. In fact, I like it. 
And that to me really does, again, this whole idea of you're not afraid to fight. And I know that you just indicated you had lots and lots and lots of evidence, but from my perspective, it was still the government of the United States of America that you were going up against. Yeah. And it had to be taxing. It had to make you somewhat, you know, concerned. But it sounds like the faith of FedEx was fully behind you and you just got her done. No, it was very taxing. I, I didn't mean to suggest it wasn't. I mean, I had confidence in my case more than a defense lawyer usually has any right to have. But there were plenty of things to worry about, and not the least of which was if we lost, it was, I mean, I don't know what would have happened, but it was, it was like death. What kind of things do you do, Chris, to handle the stress? You know, I think I kind of thrived on the stress. <laughs> stress made me work harder. What did I do to handle it? I made sure that I had a lot of people helping me, like I keep coming back to that. I got I had partners who were the greatest. So that's first is what I did. The second is I'm pretty good at putting it away. So I I tried hard, I mean not during trial, but up to trial, I would try extra hard to not work late at night, you know, take at least one day off on the weekend, make sure I got exercise, I would eat right, you know, I would like be in physical training kind of during the stressful times. And that worked for me. What kind of advice do you have for younger lawyers? To criminal lawyers, I say, if what you want to be is a criminal lawyer, then you must, no question about it, go to work for either a public defender or a prosecutor's office. You have to immediately go to some office that is going to get you into court every single day and is going to have you trying your own cases, not assisting someone, but trying your own cases. And if you do that early in your career, you will find out if you like it or not. And if you like it, you'll never settle for anything else. You, you will insist upon having jobs in which that's what you get to do, which most likely means you should be in a smallish firm. Because if you go to a big firm, it will be years before you're ever the person who is in charge of a case. So that's my advice to criminal lawyers. Civil lawyers, I know less about, but I would say they need to go somewhere small to begin with because they need the same kind of thing. They need to go somewhere where they're going to have a significant role in the preparation for the trial and the trial. If they go to a bigger outfit, they're likely to just be doing discovery work for years and years. And if you haven't actually tried the a bunch of cases, civil or criminal, then you're not going to be good at it. You're not going to know how to evaluate anything. You're going to be a little bit afraid of going to trial instead of relishing it. And you can't negotiate well unless you think going to trial is, is the ice cream for dessert. If, you, if you're looking forward to going to trial, you're never going to make a bad deal because you really would rather go to trial. And that's the mental state that you want to be in. From what I know, for a civil trial lawyer, they have to start at a small place in order to accomplish that. The idea is to get yourself into that courtroom. You've got to be in the courtroom early and often and for a sustained period, and you've got to be the one in charge. 
There's no substitute for being the one who actually has to make the decisions, the hard decisions. You have been a member of the American College of Trial Lawyers since 2000. Mm -hmm. What has that meant to you to be in the college? You know, I was really surprised at how much I liked being in the college. I didn't really know that much about it before I was admitted to it. I guess because it is mostly civil lawyers. I, I don't know why I didn't know much about it, but I didn't. And so when I first was knowing about it, I sort of thought, oh, you know, another bar association. And then I went to a couple of meetings. And I this, this maybe is going to sound hackneyed, I don't know, but there is a different atmosphere and mentality amongst the people that attend those meetings. It's sort of like cut the self-aggrandizement, you know? Don't go around bragging or advertising or trying to network or anything. People are real at it. You get to be friends with people and you get to know them. I, I could meet the same guy at a San Francisco Bar Association or at the college two different weekends, and I swear he's going to be different when he's at the college. He's going to be relaxed and not on stage. And so I really have enjoyed it a lot. Can you think of a time that you can share with us when you felt very powerful in your career? Well, I felt powerful when I turned back the government on behalf of FedEx, that's for sure. But that is a very unique situation. I guess I would say I felt powerful or influential any time I think a judge came out wanting to give my client five years and wound up giving him two years because of what I said. You know, any time I ever made that difference, which you don't always know if you did or you didn't, you know, sometimes you get to find out. But I always felt like I could tell when something was changing because of what I was doing. And that is a feeling of being influential, maybe it's powerful, I don't know. I'm going to flip that around. Can you think of a time and share with us in your career when you felt powerless? Well, that's a common experience amongst the criminal defense bar. I mean, I would say the times when I felt the most powerless would probably be during bail hearings after they passed the statute in which detention, meaning jailing somebody, was the presumption. In other words, you walked into a bail hearing and there was a statutory presumption that the person should not get out. And that was a very, very hard presumption to ever overcome because of the way they defined the criteria. So that was a recurring feeling of powerlessness. And, you know, whether you get out on bail or not is some people think that's the biggest factor in how your case comes out. So feeling powerless about that important decision is is a very bad feeling. You are known for your cross-examination skills, and that has followed you throughout your entire career. Do you have advice for young lawyers or more experienced lawyers about how to go about and prepare for cross-examination? Well, that's also something I give, you know, hour-long lectures on. You know, everybody says preparation. Of course, that is the, that is the key. I have my own specific brand of preparation, which is very labor-intensive, but very worth it, which is that when I outline my cross-examination, and my outlines are very detailed, 
if I say, you said that it was a blue car, I have that written down on the page, and then halfway over on the page indented, I have in red the place where that person once said it was a blue car with the citation to it. So if they say, no, I didn't, I don't have to look anywhere. I don't have to fumble with a notebook. I don't have to say to my associate, give me that police report, because I have it written down in blue, or red, actually. And I know it's exactly right, and I, I'm able to just, without missing a beat, say, you said on April 19th, 2020, to Officer Jones that it was a blue car. And I can say it with complete authority, because I know, because it's on the page, that that's exactly right. And I do it with every, oh, pretty much every statement that I'm trying to get out of somebody, every fact I'm trying to get out of somebody, which is why it is so labor-intensive. But they do not stray. You, you hit them with that a few times, and then they don't, they don't argue with you anymore. And then you're able to put in some things that you don't have citations for, because they think you do. And I even have, like, blue is a citation, meaning it, they said it, but it wasn't under oath. If it's in red, it means a citation, and they said it under oath somewhere. So it really takes a long time. You hate while you're doing it, but it is so, it works so well. It looks easy if you're watching it, right? Right. If you're watching it, it looks like it's just seamless, and you are all-knowing. Yeah. But Obviously, the time and effort that you put into that to make it look seamless is the key. Yeah, and it just takes so long you can't believe it, but it looks like you have a photographic memory when somebody's watching, and it affects the way you're able to deliver the questions because you, you have the confidence of knowing, I know this, I have this, they said this, I can prove it. You know what I mean? You, there's, there's no bravado in it. I know it, and having that confidence means I can deliver it with confidence. Well, it seems to me that the reason that you can look intuitive and you can look like you're at very much at ease and it's free-flowing is because you're so prepared, because you have it all right there that if the witness's answer is different, you just pull them right back in, <laughs> smack them down. Right. And, you know, when I was a younger lawyer, I would go dig out all those references and put them in there. When things got more complicated and I had more help, other people can find the citations and put them in. You, you can just say what you want to say, and then somebody else can do what I just said has to be done. But for many years, I did it all myself. What do you see going forward? What are your priorities for the future? Well, my priorities for the future is that I'm retired. <laughs> so that's my priority for the future. I, I did this for 41 years, and I didn't need to do it anymore. So I have recently retired, and I never stopped liking what I was doing. Never. And I don't think I was ever going to stop liking what I was doing. But I did think that if you want the next section of life to be good, you have to start doing it at a time when you can not just drift into it, but develop this part of life, the post-law life, I call it. So I didn't want to wait until I was, like, you know, doddering. So I just hung it up recently. Wow. And making that decision 
Was it difficult at that particular time or have you been planning for a specific date? How did it happen? You know, I had been thinking about it. I had been taking fewer cases, but I was still working them very intensely as I always did, but there were fewer of them. And it kind of coincided with COVID in that I am really not interested in being a Zoom lawyer. I realize that things are starting to come back now, but there's still going to be plenty of, this is going to stay permanent in some ways. There are many prosecutors who are saying, well, just come on, you know, we'll just do it on Zoom. And to me, you can't be persuasive on Zoom, you know, so I didn't want to do that. So that sort of tipped my hand. Well, the trial bar as a whole and the criminal defense bar certainly will miss you. I feel very confident in in making that statement. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for your time today. On behalf of the American College, I really do appreciate your candidness uh, and sharing some of your stories and your advice with us today. Sure thing. Thank you. Thank you, Chris, so much for joining us this afternoon. And thank you all for listening to another episode of Trial Tested by the American College of Trial Lawyers. Thank you for listening to Trial Tested. Our next episode drops on Thursday, so please subscribe now and hear every inspiring episode.